We all have a hypocritical person or two or three or four or a dozen in, in our lives. It might not be quite as glaring, quite as obvious as we just saw in that video, but, but they're there and they're out there. In fact, they're sitting among us right now. Don't turn and point to your spouse, like again, like safe place here at church. We just kind of wrapped up the, the Halloween season. Hopefully you had fun taking your kids. If you have kids trick-or-treating and like sleeting and rain and like 30 degrees, that was a heck of an experience. Actually, it was kind of a good thing, right? Because you got to come in earlier and not trick-or-treat as long. But anyway, uh, that, that season's kind of behind us. And one of the things that you find out uh, as, a, as a leader in a church is that if you do anything that kind of even like remotely ties in to Halloween and like the Halloween season, it's like the, the critics just kind of come out of the woodwork and, and they're quick to, you know, point out the fact that Halloween is a terrible, it's an evil thing. It's basically the equivalent of like Satan's Christmas. Like literally they, they say these things. And, and one of the questions when people kind of engage me in that dialogue that I always ask them is like, well, do you put up a Christmas tree in December? Do, do you let your kids open Christmas presents on Christmas day? Do, do you let your kids, you know, do an Easter egg hunt around Easter. It's like, okay, that, that's what I thought. So you're just choosing to have a problem with Halloween. But meanwhile, you'll, you'll add in all these other kind of secular ideas like into other like Christian holidays. You know, uh, like at Easter, I doubt like Jesus rose from the dead and he's like, now go and find eggs, okay? It's just like, that's what you have chosen to take issue with. And, and it's really irritating for me, for people like me, and it's not because it's eliciting these feelings of guilt. It's not because, oh my goodness, yeah, I kind of got rid of that, but now you're bringing it back up again. No, it's because it's so incredibly hypocritical. And so today, as we wrap up this series, we're going to be talking a little bit about these hypocritical people that, that are a part of every single one of our lives. And staying true to this series, we're not going to be talking about how we put up with them. We're not going to be talking about how we deal with hypocritical people, but the question that we've been asking throughout this series is how do we love the people? How do we truly love the people that seem to suck the life out of us? Those people that can be draining, those people that, that can be, you know, just so like grinding in our lives. And the reason that we think that this is such a big deal is because whether you've totally bought into this or not, uh, God loves you. God loves you a lot, in fact. He, he went to enormous lengths to demonstrate that to you when he sent his son to die on a cross for you. And as the Jesus followers in the room in particular, we are called to reciprocate that love, that love that was demonstrated to us by God sending his son to die on a cross for us. We are called to reciprocate that love to the people around us, even including the people that can be really draining, the people that can be difficult, the people that can be challenging. And so if you haven't been here for every single week of this series, in the part one, we talked about controlling people. In part two, we talked about critical people. In part three, last week, Melissa did a great job talking about how do we love needy people. And the reality is, is that this is a people thing. This isn't a Christian or a non-Christian thing. We all have these people in our lives. And so I guarantee that this series applies to you. I guarantee there are nuggets there that you can take Takeaway. And so if you haven't been here every week of this series, make sure you're going to grumlaw.com slash messages and catching yourself up there. Or as always, you can find us under Grumlaw Church wherever it is you happen to grab your podcast. But before we dive this morning into these hypocritical people and how we are called to love them well, I'd love to just pray for you and pray for me. So allow me to do that now. God, we thank you that you are a God that is, uh, as it says in those lyrics of that song, that you are a God that's for us, not against us. Uh, that you're a God that really does want what is best for our lives. And so I just ask God that today, uh, every person that's sitting in this room, uh, regardless of why we're here, some people wanted to show up here, other people got guilted into showing up, other people were basically forced into being here, that no matter where we're at, you know, in, in this whole faith journey, uh, we would just be open 
We'd be receptive to whatever it is that you do want to say to us this morning, because I guarantee if we're willing to listen, you have something to say to us today. Uh, It's in your name we pray, amen. Now, I mentioned this in in part one of this series. This is actually uh, the part of this series, Relational Vampires, that I have been most looking forward to. And, And I think that's the case because the number one complaint that I hear about Christians from non-Christians isn't that they're like too nice. It's not that they love people too well. It's not that they follow the teachings of Jesus too closely. It's not that they're living their lives so much different from the people around them. No, the number one complaint that I hear about Christians from non-Christians is that Christians are a bunch of hypocrites. And I see some heads nodding because chances are, if you've been a part of this church, if you've been a part of this Christianity thing for really any length of time, you too have probably heard the same. Now what's interesting about this word hypocrite is that it's an original context. It didn't really have a negative connotation. In fact, it kind of meant something entirely different. That This word actually has its roots in Greek theater. It comes from a Greek word called hypocrites. Everybody say hypocrites. You guys are all so stinking intelligent. You're walking out of here learning some new Greek. Congratulations. Okay, hypocrites. It literally translated, it means a stage actor. It means a pretender. Quite honestly, it means somebody that wears a mask. So somebody that is pretending to be outwardly something that isn't necessarily going on in the inside. It's an actor, it's an actress. But then Jesus comes along, he steps foot on the earth a couple thousand years ago, and he in a lot of ways is responsible for popularizing this term that we now know as hypocrite. Now, 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 some of you that are, that are sitting here today, and by the way, we are so glad that you are here if this describes you. Some of you are just, dis, you know, just starting to explore this whole thing. You're just starting to ask these basic questions about Christianity. You're not even sure if you've completely bought into this whole Jesus guy. But I'm going to show you something this morning that you absolutely 100% have in common with Jesus. You ready for this? This is exciting. Jesus had zero tolerance for hypocrites. And and chances are you have little to zero tolerance for hypocrites as well. When you read through these gospel accounts, we say gospels, we're referring to the first four books of the New Testament, which is kind of the second half of the Bible, the books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those four books document for us Jesus' birth, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And by the way, you should not just take my word for it on this stuff on Sunday mornings. Go and read about the life of Jesus. You might be really, really surprised at what you find within those pages of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. There's free Bibles every single week in the back. Take one and start reading about the life of Jesus. But when you read through those gospel accounts, you find that there was nothing that really frustrated, there was nothing that really irritated Jesus more than hypocritical people. And, And what's worse is that those hypocritical people were also typically religious people. It's kind of interesting, right? Not much has changed in that regard. We see one of these such occasions in the book of Matthew, specifically in the 23rd chapter. Jesus, again, for it seems like maybe the hundredth time, is popping off and getting pretty frustrated with these hypocritical religious people. He says this, outwardly, the words of Jesus, outwardly you look like righteous people. Outwardly, you're working really, really hard to portray yourself in like kind of this religious light that you have it all together, that you are holier than the people around you. But inwardly, your hearts are filled with hypocrisy. Your hearts are filled with lawlessness. Like an actor, you're working really, really hard to outwardly appear as somebody that is a complete and a total departure from what is actually going on in the inside. So so how do we love 
these hypocritical people that whether we like it or not, that they're a part of our lives and history would suggest that they're not going anywhere. How do we deal with that guy that has seemed to make it his entire agenda in life to spread hate on the LGBTQ community, but meanwhile has an addiction to porn? Maybe it's that Christian teenager that shows up here every Sunday morning and they, they put their hands in the air during worship, they sing the songs, they listen to the messages, they nod their heads, they're maybe even a part of our student programs, but on Friday and Saturday nights getting drunk with their friends. Maybe it's that boss that, that, that promises you up and down that they go to church on Sundays, that they follow Jesus, but you sure do seem to overhear that boss cussing out and using language that you would never use to coworkers, to employees, to competitors. Maybe it's that friend that's constantly on you, like, oh my goodness, like it's the worst thing that they could imagine that you would drink soda, but meanwhile, they're like slurping down Gatorade and vaping. And you're like, as if those things are somehow good for you. How are we called to respond? What are we called to do? And so what I want to do this morning is I want to build a foundation for why a hypocritical person might act the way that they do and then talk about how, as Jesus followers in particular, we are called to respond because why they are helps determine what we do. Why they are the way that they are helps determine what we do, how we respond. If a per person is portraying one thing but living something entirely different, what has led that individual to that point? And then how do we appropriately respond? Now, I think all of you probably know this, but hypocrites, right, they come in all shapes and sizes. We find them in basically every walk of life. But the, but the hypocrite that we're going to be in particular speaking about this morning in large part is the hypocritical Christian. And we're doing that for a couple of different reasons. One, it seems that that's the type of hypocrite that Jesus most took issue with, so we're just kind of taking our cue from him. Uh, number two, unfortunately, I think that's probably the most common type and the most prevalent type of hypocrite that we have in our society and three, I think that's probably the type of hypocrite that I'm most at liberty to speak about this morning. So why is a hypocritical person acting this way? Number one, maybe, maybe they don't really know God. I, I want to make sure that this is really, really clear. Again, particularly if you're new to this whole Christianity thing. J just because a person shows up to church on a semi-regular basis, just because they might be involved on one of the serving teams here, just because they happen to sign up for a connect group, just because they are involved in Christian activities does not necessarily mean that they have an intimacy with God. Don't miss this. Proximity to God does not guarantee intimacy with God. Just because you are engaged in activities that seem close to God doesn't mean that you have a deep that you have a growing, that you have a meaningful, that you have an intimate relationship with your heavenly father. John was a guy, uh, you'll hear his name mentioned all throughout the New Testament, this, this book that we call the Bible. Uh, John was a guy that, that spent a ton of time with Jesus. He was one of those 12 disciples, one of Jesus' closest friends. But we have a lot, actually have a lot of scripture to suggest that John was actually like closer to Jesus than any of the other disciples, that they were like truly like the best of friends. And, and in John's letter entitled 1 John, he says this, if someone claims I know God, but then doesn't obey God's commandments, that person is a, pretty strong language, a liar and is not living in the truth. I'm embarrassed to, to admit to all of you that uh, for much of my life, and felt, in fact, well into my college years, this, this perfectly described me. I, I, I could talk about God. 
I knew plenty about God. I had been going to church my entire life. I could tell you a bunch of verses that I even had memorized, but I was not, as John says here, living in the truth. I had no relationship. It was all religion. I was portraying myself right down to the way that I dressed to be one person on Sunday morning and then living something entirely different Monday through Saturday. I thought that I knew God, but I didn't. And I'm so thankful that about my sophomore year of college, so some men that were truly pursuing Jesus, that they were truly chasing after Jesus with everything that they had, came alongside my life and started to provide me with accountability. But they also extended grace and humility and forgiveness and showed me what it was like to actually pursue Jesus. They showed me that a life with Jesus is one that has more meaning and more purpose than I could have ever possibly imagined. So maybe they don't really know God. Or number two, maybe they don't know better yet. There's another guy that you'll read an awful lot about in this book called the Bible if you start reading this thing for yourself that goes by the name of Paul. In fact, Paul was responsible for writing better than half of the New Testament, that second half of the Bible. And he is really responsible for spreading the name of Jesus around much of the ancient Mediterranean world in the first century. And he was constantly, constantly dealing with this tension of maybe they don't know better yet. People that just genuinely didn't know. We see him address this specifically in, in his letter to the early church in Corinth. He says, dear brothers and sisters, when I was with you, I couldn't talk to you as I would to spiritual people. He, he goes, I couldn't just start talking to you as if you had this enormous amount of knowledge, as if you had grown up in the church. I had to talk to you differently. Why? I had to talk to you as though you belonged to this world or as though you were infants in Christ. You were essentially newborns. I mean, yeah, you, you had put your faith in Jesus, but it was like that was about as far as it went. You didn't really know much else. I had to feed you with milk, not with solid food. He's drawing off that imagery of a baby. He's like, if I would have given you the same information that I would give to a spiritually mature crowd, people that have grown up with this, you wouldn't have been able to handle it, so I had to give you milk because you weren't ready for anything stronger. Paul's telling us, he goes, I communicate differently to certain groups of people depending on where they are at with their walk with Jesus. There's a couple of years ago where I had one of the most difficult conversations that I had ever had in my life at, at that point. I was working at another church called Mile City. Uh, it's the church that sent us out and really helped us get started down in uh, Plymouth, Michigan. And uh, there was a couple uh, that was working back in our children's ministry that was just like knocking it out of the park. I mean, they had so much energy and they were just like so good with kids, so good modeling, like what it meant to just show kids the, the love of Jesus. And then unbeknownst to us, uh, we found out that even though they weren't married, they, they were living together. Now, let me pause on that statement real quick. There are probably people here, I, in fact, I know that there are people here that, that aren't married yet that are living together. And our goal is not to condemn you in that. In fact, one of the things you'll hear us say an awful lot around here is that you can, you can belong here long before you believe everything that we talk about. But there are certain positions within this church, within the last church I was at, that we just hold people to a higher standard because of the amount of influence that they are able to have over other people's lives. And our connect group leaders and our large group teachers back in our kids are one of those areas because, again, you're modeling to these kids what it means to truly give everything over to Jesus, and so I called the, these, this couple and I said, hey, would you be willing to sit down with me? There's just something that I need to address. And mind you, part of that was on us, that we didn't vet that out on the front end. And so we had to own that part of it. But I sat down with them and over about 90 minutes, an hour and a half period of time, we just talked. And they asked me questions and I asked them questions. 
And and there was grace and there was humility. And and by the end of that conversation, we, we prayed and they, both of them with tears in their eyes, they looked at me and they said, thank you so much for just being willing to have a conversation with us. Thank you for not making us feel judged. Thank you for making us not feel condemned. Nobody has ever taken the time to explain that to us. They were running under the assumption of what the world had been telling them, that that's actually a good idea, and nobody had ever presented the other side of that. Sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. When you're talking to those people that don't know better yet, that person does not need correcting. They need instructing. And and let me propose that for a lot of people in this room, we are way too quick to jump to the correction as opposed to the instruction. And then lastly, and this is the group of people that we're going to be largely focusing in on this morning, maybe they know better, but they reject the truth. And y'all, I believe this to be the true hypocrite because I'm not even sure if I'm ready to lump these first two categories into that whole hypocritical nature because they really don't know. They've never had it modeled to them what it really means to pursue Jesus. But it's not the case with this third category. They know better, but yet they continue to dishonor God with the way that they live their lives. A lot of people don't know this, but Jesus, uh, he actually had siblings. Jesus had younger brothers. He had younger sisters. One of the younger brothers of Jesus is a guy by the name of Jude, and he addresses this in his letter, aptly titled Jude. He says this, some ungodly people have wormed their way into your churches. Kind of a strange way to put it, but there's probably people that have wormed their way into Grumlaw, saying that God's marvelous grace allows us to live immoral lives. Now, Again, I've been a part of this Christianity thing for a minute, and I have heard this over and over and over again. People that will come to me and they'll ask that question, okay, if God is so filled with mercy, if God is so rich in grace, if God has so much forgiveness that he just readily offers to the world, why would I stop living the way that I'm living? Why wouldn't I just continue to be guided by my impulses because God in the end is just gonna forgive me anyway? And Jude says, not so fast. The condemnation of such people was recorded long ago for they have denied our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Jude is telling us, when you know what you are doing is wrong and yet you continue to live in that sin, that word that sounds pretty harsh, but that's what it is. You continue to choose your way as opposed to God's way. You are making a mockery of what Jesus did on the cross for you. As Jude says here, you are denying Jesus by the way that you are living your life. You're rejecting your Lord and your Savior. This is what all hypocrisy starts out as. It starts out as rationalization and justification, and eventually it gives birth to full-blown hypocrisy. Perhaps the most prevalent example that we see uh, uh, regarding this in, in our world, in our first world country in America, is materialism. People that say that they are followers of Jesus, but yet they continue to accumulate, they continue to hoard more and more and more for themselves without giving so much of a passing thought as to the tremendous amount of need that exists in our world at large without ever leveraging their tremendous wealth for the benefit of the people around them. And when those moments of conviction do rise up, when they do have those feelings like, maybe this is getting a little excessive, they just shove it back down and they say, well, who cares? Even if it is sin, what does it really matter? Because God's just going to forgive me anyway. We begin to take advantage of God's grace and use it as a way to justify our incredibly hypocritical behavior. 
I've seen this play out uh, when confronting men about you know, pornography and, and talking to them about it and, and seeing it just get really, really defensive where they're like, well, what do you care if I do that? It's in the privacy of my own home. If my wife would take care of me in the way that she's supposed to, then, then I wouldn't be forced to go and look at that stuff. What business is that of yours? How dare you have that conversation with me? So is it any of our business? Are we supposed to, in, in the words of Michael Scott, get in each other's business? It's important, I believe, that we get this right because of the effect that one, it can have on the hypocrite and, and push them even further away the effect that it can have on our own lives, but maybe more importantly than both of those, the effect it can have on the people that are watching. I, I think it breaks the heart of Jesus when he sees that Jesus' followers just continue to duke it out, that we just can't seem to get along. Y'all, if we can't even get along with each other, how in the heck are we supposed to get along with the world? How are we supposed to get along with people who are far from God? You've probably seen, most of you have probably seen, if you spent any amount of time online or paying attention to the news, over the last couple of weeks, um, you know, there's been a lot of, in the news about Kanye West and, and just kind of the transformation that has occurred in that dude's life. Like, I listened to that album and was like, what? Like, it was insane. Like, a, a buddy of mine showed me, uh, sent me the link to the interview that he had on Jimmy Kimmel. I watched it, and I, gri- I cried. I, like, sobbed like a baby, much like when I see, like, these baptism stories, because I was just, like, so jacked up about what was happening in this guy's life, and, and the transformation, just the smile on his face. It's like, dude, this guy doesn't even sound like the same purpose. Like, Jesus has grabbed a hold of this dude's life, and then dreaming and praying and thinking about, oh my goodness, how is God going to leverage this? for the benefit of other people? How is God gonna use this platform to grab other people and grab them closer to him? And then I made the, the, the mistake of scrolling down and reading the comments. It's just filled with, with, with Jesus followers duking it out, questioning whether it was authentic or not, questioning whether it's some sort of PR ploy, questioning whether he should even be allowed to speak about God considering his past. Shut up, let's celebrate. Let's celebrate the fact that a guy's life has been completely transformed because of Jesus. Who are we to judge if it's genuine? Who are we to judge whether something's actually happening there? So I think it's really, really important that we get this right. So three thoughts on how we prayerfully confront a hypocritical person. Number one, we confront with the goal, the sole goal of restoration. If your goal walking into one of these conversations is to be right it's probably not in your best interest. It's probably not in the other party's best interest. It's probably not in the best interest of the people around you for you to open your mouth. When your goal is restoration, your goal isn't to be right. Your goal is to help someone get right with God. So take the time to carefully examine your motives. You all, you can be right all day and write the person right out of your life. You can have that argument perfectly crafted, every word, and as we have all experienced, it will not matter. The other person will not care if you were right or if you were wrong. I have seen this so common between teenage sons and teenage daughters and their parents. One or both parties were so concerned about being right that they righted the child right out of the relationship. 
Paul, in another place, another one of his letters to the letter of the church in Galatia, he has this to say. He says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path. The, the, the key words here being gently, humbly. You, you can't be gentle and humble and also be vindictive and arrogant and argumentative. You, you can't have a heart for restoration if all you want to do is be right and prove that the other person is wrong. Those two things are not compatible. You are the guide, not the judge. As we mentioned in, in the second part of this series, God makes it so clear over and over and over again that he has the judge role covered. He, he has not given that role to a single person on the face of this earth. That is not on us. The, the last series that we did here at Grumlaw was a series called What Would It Take? And it all centered around this question of what would it take for one of your siblings to convince you that they were like actually the son of of God. And, uh, you know, as it turns out, Jesus, again, he had siblings, and they actually didn't believe that their older brother was the Son of God until he rose from the grave. And then there was this complete transformation that occurred in their lives as a result of that. And, and one of the things that we did during that series is we made this like series of just kind of videos that we thought were cute and funny. They would usually play right before the speaker jumped up on stage. And, you know, one guy was portraying to be Jesus, and the other was presented to be G James, and, you know, we had fun with that, and in one of those videos, we, we made a comment um, that we thought was cute, that we thought was funny, and we made light of adoption. The, the, the line was like, oh, you know, you were basically adopted, and, and I had a couple that came up to me uh, after we showed that video, and, and they were ticked, but it was truly a heart of like, I don't think you realize what you're saying with, with those types of comments, and they communicated to me in stern but in a loving way, like, hey, can you imagine if an adopted child was sitting in the audience, how that would make them feel? Ch church is supposed to be the one place, the one place where they can show up to and never feel judged, and they never feel belittled. And I'm telling you, those little remarks like that, you're cutting them. You're, you're consciously, you're, you're making them feel less than a child of God. And I remember sitting in that moment and just going like, oh my gosh, I'm such a fool. Why didn't I think of that? But it was so great because that conversation didn't come from a place of judgment, but genuinely wanting to make this community better, making this church better, making me better. It came from a place of restoration. Number two, we confront carefully. Again, Paul says in that letter to the early church in Galatia, he says, dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you are godly, should gently, should humbly help that person back onto the right path. And then he continues, he says, and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Now, I've studied this, this passage of scripture many, many times, and I've always just kind of naively understood it to mean that like, okay, you know, when you're confronting somebody else about something else, be really careful that you don't fall into that same thing. You know, so if you confront somebody about looking at pornography, be really careful that you don't also fall in and get tempted to start looking at pornography. Be, be you know, be careful when you go and talk to that friend about how harshly he's treating his wife. Otherwise, you might start treating your wife like a jerk. But when I really process that, that doesn't really make any sense. Because I've had these conversations before, and, and, and they've never gone that way. I've never had that conversation with a buddy of mine that I get the feeling that they're starting to drink too much, and then myself, I walk away go like, man, I really want to go to a bar and get hammered. The opposite usually tends to happen. 
It kind of solidifies those convictions. So what is Paul talking about right here? What I think that Paul was largely referring to was was pride. When you confront someone, and, and in particular, if it actually goes well, that person is receptive to what you are saying, we in that moment become so incredibly vulnerable to pride. And any of you that, that have confronted, and any of you that, that has gone well, you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's so easy in those moments to be like, well, check me out. That went really well. I am quite the connoisseur of confrontation. I should do this more often. Who else has some problems that need dealing with? Do not. Do not start thinking higher of yourself than you ought to. You're simply the instrument You're simply the guide that God happens to be choosing to use in that given moment, nothing more. Continue to stand in that posture of gentleness, of humility. Now, now real quick, I want to give us a couple of quick tips uh, when we step into these situations where we're called to confront carefully. In fact, uh, Jesus actually brilliantly addresses this in Matthew chapter 18. We don't have time to run through this verse by verse, but I would highly recommend you reading through that passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 18. So I'm going to summarize a little bit. But first thing, first tip, don't confront people who are not Jesus followers. Over and over again, when Jesus, when his apostles, when Paul when they address this whole issue of confronting somebody else, there's always this disclaimer statement that says, if another believer. It's not your place to confront a person who has not put their faith in Jesus. It's one of the greatest mistakes that Jesus followers continue to make, and you need to stop. You're giving all of us a bad reputation. You're making all Jesus followers look bad. Stop asking non-Christians to live to a Christian standard. If somebody that was of the Muslim faith was to come up to you and say, hey, you gotta start doing this, 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 this in your life, all because it says so in the Quran, you would look at them and as politely as you could muster up, you would say, well, no thank you, because I am not a Muslim. So I am not going to do these things, bingo. That is exactly what your coworkers and your friends and your neighbors and your family members are thinking as you continue to hit the Bible over their heads and continue to tell them that they need to change the ways that they are living because the Bible says so and because Jesus says so. They are thinking to themselves, I could care less what the Bible says. I don't really care what Jesus says because I am not a follower of Jesus. If you're sitting here today and that's ever been your experience, I am so sorry. Again, that, that, that's not Jesus. That's not the heart of Jesus. That Those are annoying people. Again, you can belong here long before you ever embrace everything that we talk about. Stop forcing the rules down people's throats. And, and instead, how about we show them the love of Jesus? That that tended to work pretty well for Jesus. I suspect it will work better for you. Another tip, have a private conversation. I I can't speak for all of you, uh, but when I am called out in public, even even when I am flat out dead wrong, it's kind of a hard situation, right? It's kind of hard to to suck up that pride and just be like accepting of whatever that person is telling you. Privacy shows that you care. Privacy shows that you truly love them. Privacy demonstrates a relationship. Privacy shows that you really do have their best interest in mind, that you are for them. 
And then as we see detailed in Matthew chapter 18, again, uh, it's not always going to go well, even if you're in private, e- even if you like, take these tips, and then sometimes you have to bring in support if they're not accepting of that. You bring in two or three witnesses, and then you bring it before the leadership of the church. And if they still do not listen, then you redefine the relationship. I, I was with another pastor uh, that, that's here in the state of Michigan this, this past week, and uh, he was telling me about one of their student leaders. He's a full-time employee, was just crushing it in his role, but at one of their recent student retreats, he made a really boneheaded decision. And, and he was caught basically red-handed, and so he went to him and he said, hey, we know that this happened. We're just asking you, okay, like explain yourself. You just need to repent. And the guy just denied it. And so then they brought in two or three witnesses and they were all like, dude, like why are you lying? Like we know this happened and he still denied it. Then they brought it for the leadership of the church and they were just begging like, please, please, please just admit to this. Not only did he not admit to it, he continued to deny it. And in turn, he tried to justify the behavior that he was supposedly not a, a part of. And so they had to redefine the relationship, that they had to say, okay, you're, you're no longer welcome to be an employer here, that they were willing to accept and extend grace if he would have repented, if he would have admitted his wrongdoing, but, but your pride is preventing that relationship from moving forward, and they weren't going to allow that toxicity to breed in their culture, to breed in their church. And then lastly, As we think about all these hypocritical people in our lives, the question we need to ask of ourselves is, help me see when I'm the hypocrite. Now, if you haven't caught on to this yet, this is kind of the theme of the series. We point out all the people that are around us that are really needy, and then we go, oh crud, that's a little bit of me as well. Help me see when I'm the hypocrite. Jesus addresses this in in Matthew chapter 7. He says, and why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye? Hypocrite. First get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. It's not terribly difficult imagery to grab onto what Jesus is saying and why did he say this? Because we all know hypocrisy is so easy to spot in others, but it's next to impossible to see in ourselves. So easy to find that in other people, but it's so incredibly difficult to be honest with ourselves and point the finger back at ourselves when it is so clearly exists in so many of us. When my wife and I uh, first got married, um, we were working at this Christian camp down in Ohio and having the time of our lives and one of the things, it seemed like about once a week, I would notice that some of our college friends were kind of just still living like the college life. And I'd see these pictures on Facebook and I'd see them taking shots together at bars and like partying and having a good time on the weekends. And I would sit in those moments in such judgment. I I would pop off to my wife and be like, can you believe these sick people? What is wrong with them? When are they gonna grow up? They claim to know Jesus. I bet they're going to go to church tomorrow and they wouldn't even have a guilty conscience. And I would go on and on on these world famous rants and I'm sure my wife would just sit there like, great, this is awesome. You know, and I just keep talking, keep talking, keep talking. And then one day it was like God just slapped me upside the head. He's like, really? You're going to continue to stand on your high horse regarding these people? Because isn't it true, you punk? that you've had your friends over to your house over the last year or so and you probably drank more than you should? Isn't it true that as you sit there in judgment about, oh my goodness, I can't believe that they would take shots, that you have taken shots with your friends? Just because there's not photographic evidence available online doesn't make it any less wrong. 
Just because not as many people are seeing it doesn't make it any less wrong. Haven't you experienced this, that your greatest weaknesses are most obvious than others? The things that you struggle with the most seem more glaring in other people. The sins that you continue to fall into, you are so quick to cast judgment on other people for the exact same thing. I was so quick to to, to judge these people that I was seeing online, but wouldn't you know it, it was probably the most glaring flaw, sin, wrongdoing in my life at that point. James, another one of the brothers of Jesus, gives us some parting words. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, if someone among you wanders away from the truth and is brought back, you can be sure that whoever brings the sinner back from wandering will save that person from death and bring about the forgiveness of many sins. Aren't you really, really thankful for the people that have brought you back? Aren't you really, really thankful for the people that have loved and cared for you well enough that they've approached you with grace and humility and gently brought you back rather than arrogance, rather than this desire to be right and prove that you are wrong? You all, as in every single one of you, you have the opportunity to do that with other people. But you must not forget you are the guide, not the judge. You do not fix people. Jesus does. So confront carefully. Confront with that goal of restoration. Truly trusting that you just happen to be the instrument that God is using in that moment. But ultimately trusting that God is the one that is in control, that he is the one that truly changes lives.